You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, my task in this opening message on 1 Timothy uh, is to orient us in the letter itself as we are going to be working through it over the course of this, this semester. And so this, uh, this sermon this morning has kind of four parts, and I'll give them to you now so that you can be tracking with them as we go. Um, first, I want us to talk a little bit about who Timothy is. This is a letter from Paul to Timothy, and so we want to know something about Timothy as the recipient of the letter. Uh, second, I want to think a little bit about what we know about the occasion, why, what, what prompted this letter, and the purpose of it. Like, why is Paul writing it? Um, and then third, uh, I want to briefly walk through the structure of that letter in light of the overall theme and purpose of it. And then finally, I want to spend the, the end of the sermon uh, kind of step back, and I want to offer some kind of macro reflections that I hope will help us in America in 2019 to rightly hear what this letter has to teach us. So those are the four. Who's Who's Timothy? Why was this written? What's the structure? And what do we need to know? What kind of categories do we need to have in order to rightly hear it? So let's begin there with, with Timothy. So who, who is Timothy? Well, Timothy, we know from elsewhere in the Scriptures, is the son of a Jewish mother and a Greek father. Second uh, Timothy uh, tells us that his mother and grandmother both taught him the Word of God when he was a child. It's possible that Timothy's family uh, came to faith in Jesus during Paul's first missionary uh, journey. We actually first meet Timothy in the book of Acts in chapter 16. And what we're told there is that Timothy is this young, uh, well-respected disciple at Lystra. And the disciples there commend him to Paul. And Paul is so impressed with him that he takes him on as a kind of apprentice. And so he travels with Paul. He becomes his uh, traveling companion. Because he has a Greek father, Timothy uh, had not been circumcised, but because Paul will be ministering among Jews and doesn't want to give offense, he uh, has Timothy circumcised before he begins the ministry. And then what we see in the New Testament is that throughout Paul's ministry, Timothy is is basically Paul's right-hand man. Everywhere he goes, uh, Timothy's often with him. And or Timothy is sent ahead of Paul to a, to a place. I'm going to send Timothy before I come. And Timothy's going to bring a letter, maybe the letter that he's sending. Uh, and it's a letter of encouragement or exhortation. Or sometimes Timothy is left behind after Paul uh, leaves in order to continue the ministry there. So, for example, Paul sends Timothy to Thessalonica to exhort them during a time of affliction. He hears about affliction there, and he says, I need to send, I can't go, I need to send somebody. Who am I going to send? Timothy, 1 Thessalonians 3. Uh, He sends Timothy to the Corinthians to remind them of Paul's way of life so that the Corinthians can imitate it, that they've forgotten. Paul thinks, you've forgotten what I'm like. I'm going to send Timothy to remind you so that they can imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. And then, of course, there's the, the, the most the clearest passage about Timothy in the Bible, which is in the letter of Philippians. Here's what Paul says in Philippians 2. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. You wonder what the rest of Paul's companions thought about that, right? Um, 
For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. And so you hear those key descriptions, right? No one like him, genuinely concerned for the good of others, has proven worth and like a son to Paul in the gospel. Timothy is Paul's most trusted ministry companion, and based on certain exhortations in First and Second Timothy, uh, we learn a few more things about him, or at least we speculate. These are more speculative. Um, he may have been a little bit timid. Paul has to tell him in Second Timothy, like, "Hey, don't don't be timid. Be, be have courage. You you've got the gift of God. You need to fan it into flame. Don't be timid." Uh, it's possible. Um, that, uh, that he is self-conscious about his youthfulness. He's young. So in this letter, he's gonna, Paul's going to say, don't let people look down on you because you're young. Set an example, even for older people. And so he may have been self-conscious about his youth. He may have had some health issues. Paul has to tell him, don't take a little wine for your stomach. You need to settle that thing. So, so there have been some health issues. But whatever bodily or personality weaknesses Timothy may have had, Paul never stopped trusting him to be his messenger and representative. And now one more note about the recipients of the letter. So this is a letter to Timothy. And we might think, oh, this is like we're reading someone's private mail. But that's not the case. The end of each one of the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, while they're all addressed at the beginning to Timothy or Titus, an individual, the end always ends with grace be with y'all, which is how we translate it in the Texas Standard Version. Grace be with y'all. It's plural, okay? So it seems as though the expectation is that while this is a letter to Timothy, this letter would have been read to a congregation. So Paul's saying, Timothy, this is what I want you to do, but he's writing it in such a way that he expects the people to hear Paul's charge to Timothy and therefore Paul's call to them. So this is a corporate, a public letter. Second big issue, second section here. Why is Paul writing it? What's the occasion? What's the purpose of this letter? Well, it's likely written uh, at the end of Paul's life after the end of the book of Acts. Okay, so in the book of Acts, we end with Paul in prison in Rome. This is likely written after that. It seems likely that Paul was eventually released from that Roman imprisonment in Acts 28, did a little bit more ministry, was rearrested, and that's when he was martyred under the emperor Nero. So there's this window of time where Paul is no longer in prison in Rome, but is able to do some more ministry. So scholars uh, try to put together what we see in Acts with what we see in his letters. Here, Timothy has been left at Ephesus to deal with the presence of false teachers among the Ephesian churches. So there's these false teachers there in Ephesus. And we get a glimpse of this situation in Paul's words in Acts 20. So Acts 20, Paul is about to go to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to be arrested. And he gathers up the Ephesian elders and he says, I, I want to exhort you one more time before I go. I think I might die. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm probably not going to see you guys again. So I got something to say. And this is what one of the things he says, Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. That's almost exactly what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 to Timothy. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. By it, you may save both yourselves and your hearers. Yourself and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know, listen to this, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, Paul's instructions here is basically an anticipation of what's happened in Ephesus, like it came true. Timothy is now ministering among the same elders that Paul exhorted in Acts 20. And Paul is exhorting Timothy to fight those wolves that he said would come and equip the church at Ephesus and especially the elders of that church to resist this false teaching that's arisen among them. Now, I'm going to leave the details of that false teaching. What is it? Like, what are all the pieces? What were they teaching that was false uh, until later sermons? So we get there. But for now, it's worth noting in the letter, false teaching is addressed three times. At the beginning, chapter 1, verse 3 to 7. In the middle, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. And then again at the end, chapter 6, verses 3 to 10. So the, what's the, what, why is Paul writing this letter? Because the false teaching he was concerned about has now shown up, and he wants Timothy to address it. But the aim of the letter seems to be broader than simply resist false teachers. By the time that Paul is writing this letter, the church of Jesus Christ has been in existence for about 30-plus years. So this is like 62, maybe, when Paul's writing this. In that time... The Christian church has primarily been a dynamic movement within Judaism, right? It emerges out of Judaism. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And it's sort of this like sect, this subset of Jews. A little bit odd compared to other Jews, but it's, it's basically grown based on the structures and traditions of Judaism. So, for example, the temple at Jerusalem, that's kind of a hub of Christian activity. And then whenever Paul goes on missionary journeys, where does he land when he goes to a town? He lands at the synagogue. He starts there, and then he goes to the market, and then he goes among the Gentiles, then he goes to Mars Hill, but he always is going to the synagogue. And so the church has been this kind of uh, subset of Jerusalem. Now, by the time we get to uh, the 60s, this new Christian movement has become something uh, different than, than uh, Judaism itself because it's not sectarian. You don't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. Gentiles are coming into the church as Gentiles, and therefore this Christian thing is no longer a movement within Judaism, but nor is it a pagan religion like the other religions around because it doesn't have temples. It doesn't offer sacrifice, blood sacrifice. So it's this new kind of thing, and Paul is writing at the end of his ministry, and he's thinking, in order for this movement to survive, this movement has to become an institution. In order for a movement to survive, in order for it to perpetuate itself over time, it needs to become an institution because it had been built on the back of wonder-working apostles who had known Jesus face-to-face -face or had been knocked off their horse by him, as in the case of Paul. And now all of those guys are going to die. What's going to happen to the church after? And Paul thinks, I need to make sure that these churches know what steady state Christianity should look like over the long haul. And that's why he writes these letters to Timothy and to Titus. So the longevity of Christianity depends on it being established as an institution. There must be structures and procedures for what worship looks like, for passing down the faith from generation to generation, for appointing new leaders, establishing new churches. 
However, at the same time, because Christianity isn't an ethnic religion or a sectarian religion like Judaism is, you've got to have built-in flexibility so that the good news of Jesus can plant itself in different ethnic soils. And so part of Paul's aim in the pastoral epistles is to instruct the next generation of Christian leaders in how to order and defend the household of God. That, that, that for, for the sake of God's mission. And that phrase, the household of God, comes from 1 Timothy 3. Here it is. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, like if I don't make it, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So think about it this way. If the church is a body, right, Paul often refers, refers to the church as a body, the body of Christ. Paul wants it to be a healthy body, a sound body, a growing body. And a well-ordered, sound, healthy, growing body digests food. It pumps blood. It moves oxygen around. It, all the parts function in the way that they were designed to function. A, a healthy body, a human body, has integrity and wholeness. And because it has integrity and wholeness... It has a healthy immune system that's able to fight off and resist infection. So using that analogy to think about the household of God, Paul wants an, uh, a church with integrity, with wholeness, where all the parts are functioning properly, that's able to resist infection, also that the body can do what bodies ought to do, namely, accomplish the work God has given it, fulfilling the mission of God in the world. So, in other words, here's the theme of 1 Timothy as we're going to be exploring it. Paul is exhorting Timothy to put God's house in order. That's the title of this message. Put God, putting God's house in order for the sake of God's mission. And as we work through the book, I want you to notice how, this is really important, just keep this in mind as we're reading through, how Paul expects Timothy to do this. So you think about this. There's, there's false teaching at Ephesus. There's predatory false teachers and heretics. They've arisen from their own ranks. They're derailing the mission of God. They're being divisive. There's useless speculation, false asceticism, demonic teaching, irreverent babble. They just jabber about stuff all day long. It doesn't matter. And Paul's way of addressing this is exhorting Timothy first about Timothy's own holiness, about Timothy's own conduct. So he says things like, don't let them look down on you because you're young. Set an example for all the believers. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Flee immorality. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. So, so I want to help this church get ordered. Timothy, put yourself in order first. And then, Timothy, not just yourself in order, Timothy has to ensure that the elders of this church, who are basically the immune system of a congregation. That's what elders are. They're the immune system of a congregation that ensure its integrity and wholeness and fight off infection. They have to be godly men who love the truth, sober-minded, respectable, self-controlled, not quarrelsome or covetous, men who manage their own households well so that they are qualified to put the house of God in order. Leaders protect sheep from false teaching first 
by their own godly, stable, sober-minded conduct and way of life, out of which they then teach and exhort and persuade. And this teaching and this exhortation flowing out of a godly and stable church leader orders and structures the relationships in the church as a whole so that the church is not derailed by ungodliness or false teaching or division. But instead, the church worships God rightly and serves one another faithfully and seeks the good of the cities so that God's mission is accomplished in the world. That's why we're studying this book. We, we want to be exhorted like the church at Ephesus so that we can have this house, this house here, this city's church house needs to be in order, well-ordered for the sake of God's mission in the world. So now let's briefly look at the, the, the structure of the letter before I back up and think about some macro stuff. Here's a brief overview of, of where we're going to be going. I've already mentioned this opening section where Paul says there's false teachers and he charges Timothy to address the issue. And then in chapter 1, verses 12 to 20, he reflects on his own calling and ministry and the salvation that he has as the chief of sinners. And then Paul turns to the various issues in play. And in chapter 2, the first issue is the corporate worship of the church. And that includes teaching on how the church should relate to the governing authorities, to kings and princes. Like, what should we, how should we as Christians relate to them? So Paul wants to connect church and state. What's the place of men and women in the corporate worship gathering? Like, how should men and women orient to each other and orient to the corporate worship gathering? We'll get instruction about that. And, and in that, Paul tailors his exhortation to men and to women based on specific tendencies in men and in women. Then he, he brings up another issue. Paul deals with church organization. Chapter 3, he focuses on church leadership, and he gives us the qualifications for elders and for deacons. In uh, third, in chapter 4, he presses on the particular false teaching in uh, Ephesus, and he exhorts Timothy personally about how Timothy ought to live and conduct himself in light of it. How should he help these churches resist demonic teaching? Fourth, in chapter five, he addresses various relationships in the church as a whole. So he talks about older men and older women and younger men. He talks about the place of widows in the congregation. This is apparently an issue at Ephesus. We need to, what, what's the role of widows in the congregation? And then how should the congregation relate to their elders? Like what should they, how should they treat and respect their elders of the church? And then finally, the relationships between slaves and masters in chapter 6. And then the last issue that he addresses in chapter 6 is the issue of wealth and money. Apparently, Ephesus has a number of wealthy Christians. And they need to be taught how to avoid the pitfalls of having wealth, but also not rejecting wealth, but using it for the sake of God's kingdom. And throughout the letter, here's the sort of things that you should be watching for. You should be watching for trustworthy say sayings. There's a number of trustworthy sayings that Paul is going to mention. So no notice those. Sometimes he's going to break out in doxologies. Like he's just going to erupt in praise. It happens in chapter 1, happens again in chapter 6. He's going to offer these short summaries of gospel truth, just really tight, compact. This is the foundation of our faith. This is who Jesus is. We'll get those in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. He's going to talk about the way that these various 
uh, institutions of society relate to one another, the church and the family and the church and the state. He repeatedly is going to emphasize godliness. There's a word, uh, the word godliness appears, I think, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times in the letter. It's just a recurring theme in various settings, various contexts, just godliness, 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 godliness. And he repeatedly emphasizes the connection between godliness and sound teaching. Chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 6. So that's going to be the structure. So as we work through it, watch for those structures, watch for those themes and those relationships. But now I want us to step back and I want, us to, I want to say something that's really about us in the 21st century and one of the things that keeps us from rightly understanding this book in particular, but the scriptures as a whole. So I want you to think about with me in the time I got left, um, three interlocking sources of authority, three interlocking sources of authority, Okay. Here they are. Nature, Scripture, culture. Nature, Scripture, culture. By nature, I mean the built-in, hardwired tendencies and trajectories that make us what we are as human beings, as men and women made in the image of God. That's nature. Built-in tendencies, built-in trajectories. By Scripture, I mean the promises and commands of God recorded in the Bible. And by culture, I mean customs and traditions in particular times and places. So things like hot dish in Minnesota. That's a custom, okay? Or holidays. We've been celebrating Christmas. This is Epiphany. Or removing your hat when you go indoors, or at least when you go indoors in a, like in a church, someplace respectful or something like that. It's a custom. Not a universal custom. This is particular times and locations. Or sending Christmas cards. That's a custom. That's a tradition. So natural tendencies, nature, it's just there. Like, you obey nature the way objects obey gravity, okay? You don't have to think about it. It just is. It just emerges. It's just nature is there and is real. Scripture, well, we obey commands and we believe promises. There's actions that we do. And then what about customs? Well, customs are tricky, okay? Customs are tricky because you don't exactly obey customs, it's not like there's a rule that says you must send Christmas cards, although some of you guys are like, my wife kind of acts like there is, right? Like, but, the, but the, and that's, that's the thing about customs. That's the thing about customs is they exert a certain kind of social pressure, but it's not a law, okay? And, and so we want to think about how do nature and scripture and culture relate? So we respect, we honor customs, but we don't exactly obey them. Now, these three authorities are often interwoven. A pastor friend of mine relates customs and nature this way. He says, a custom is a prudential application, a wise application of a natural law principle in a concrete setting. So you hear three things there, okay? So um, beneath customs is some kind of principle of nature, some kind of tendency that every human being has. But a custom is an application of that principle, that tendency, in a particular time and place. 
So let me just try to make this a little more concrete. Take uh, honoring your parents, okay? Honoring your parents is a natural law principle. It's just baked into the cake. It's a part of human nature. How God built us. There is a built-in tendency of children to respect and obey their parents. Now, I know that there's sin that derails this, but the principle is still there even despite the rebellion. Now, because of human rebellion, Scripture, that's nature, tendency to honor parents, Scripture comes in because of human sins, and it like doubles down on it. It ratifies it. It clarifies it. So you get the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. New Testament, Paul says, children, obey your parents and the Lord. This is right. So there's a tendency, and then Scripture, because of sin, has to clarify and reinforce it, and then culture gives expression to this natural and biblical obligation in particular customs that vary from time to time and place to place. So let me get even more concrete, and I'll widen out from honor your parents just to honoring people who are older than you. This is just honoring elders in the sense of older people. That's a natural tendency. It's natural and normal for younger people to honor and respect older people. It's just nature. And Scripture reinforces this, like in 1 Timothy 5, chapter 1. It's reinforced. But there might be different customs that express that honor. For example, if you go around, how many of you, when you were growing up, if there was an adult, you referred to them as Mr. or Mrs. Last Name? So Mr. or Mrs. Rigney. Raise your hand if that's you. Bunch of you. How many of you either grew up or are now teaching your children to address adults as Mr. or Mrs. First Name? Mr. Mr. Joe, Miss Jenny, okay? Number of you? I can see a couple hands there, okay? So there's varying customs. Both cases are designed to communicate honor. You don't just use first name for adults. You use Mr. Something, but the something differs from culture and time and place, okay? The same thing might be true about pastoral titles. Some places you go, and it's going to be Reverend, right? It'd be Reverend Rigney. Here, it's Pastor Joe. So it's the title plus a first name, but it could be Pastor Rigney at other places. Uh, I know churches where it's brother. They don't do pastor. They do brother. So it's Brother Billy or Brother John, okay? Southern Baptist, right? That's where I grew up. The point, the point is that honor in these cases is being always being expressed. The natural tendency is, is coming out, but it's coming out in varying customs. You could think about this in other ways. We're supposed to honor authorities, but are you supposed to honor them by bowing, by saluting, by kneeling? What's the appropriate way to honor leaders? Well, that depends on the concrete location and setting. How do you salute Okay, in, in militaries, there's all different kinds of salutes. American salute looks like this, palm down. The British one, palms up. I believe the Polish one is like this, and I saw a picture of a Chinese one that looked like this, which I thought was funny. But that's just because it's not normal to me. That's not our custom. We're used to this, and it looks strange, but in all those cases, the attempt is to show respect to superior officers, but the customs vary. Same thing, let's think biblically for a second. Uh, Paul closes four of his letters, 1 Corinthians, uh, Romans, and Thessalonians, with an exhortation, greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, this is a biblical exhortation to express a natural affection through a particular custom. Do you, do you 
follow that? It's a biblical exhortation, that's scripture, uh, to express a natural impulse, natural affection, that's nature, through a particular custom, a kiss. In our culture, we attempt to express the same affection, but with a different custom. Maybe a hug, or maybe a smile and a warm handshake, right? That's how we express that same natural affection. It's a different custom, same principle. Okay. Now, the Bible refers to traditions and customs all over the place. For example, customs can just be individual habits. Like Jesus, whenever he goes into a town, it was his custom to go to the synagogue. Just habit. Think So you become accustomed to something. It's your habit. Or they could be communal. So when we were just doing the Advent series in Luke chapter 1, it was the custom of the priesthood to select who's going in by lots. Like everybody, you know, you get the, I don't know what, I don't know exactly what, is it dice? Is it the little straws? I don't know what exactly it would have looked like, but some method of choosing who's going in. And, and uh, Zechariah drew it. It was the custom of some Jews to take a yearly trip to Jerusalem on Passover and Jesus' family does this in Luke chapter 2. The Jews have burial customs. They wrap the body in a certain way. They anoint them in a certain way in John chapter 19. Paul is accused of attempting to change the customs of Moses in Acts chapter 15 and 21. He's also accused of advocating non-Roman customs in Acts chapter 16. Customs can be things like legal practices, like due process. That's a custom. It varies from time and place. There's always usually some kind of due process, but what it actually looks like in Rome versus America is going to be different. Similar with tradition. Paul tells the, the Corinthians, maintain the traditions that I, that I taught you. He tells the Thessalonians, stand firm in the traditions that I brought you. 2 Thessalonians 2. Keep away from people who don't keep these traditions. At the same time, traditions can go wrong. They can be used wrongly. Remember, we were, we were going through the book of Mark. We got to Mark 7, and the, what had the Pharisees done? They had taken their traditions, which were just fine, but they'd elevated them above God's law as expressed in nature and culture. They had nullified the word of God by their traditions. And so the problem was not that they had traditions. It's they elevated human traditions above natural law and biblical law. Now, what does this have to do? Why am I saying this to 1 Timothy? Well, a key aspect of customs is propriety or fittingness, right? If, if you've ever said, that ain't right, that ain't right, you've been operating with some notion of propriety and fittingness, okay? If you've ever looked at something and go, that ain't right, okay? And you're like, it's not they're breaking a law, but it just ain't right. You're, you're saying, that doesn't fit. Those things don't go together. Something is off, and, and you're using the category of fitness. Well, customs express natural principles, and so there ought to be a, a fitness, a propriety between the natural law principle, whatever that tendency is, and the custom. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul uses the word proper. He says this, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Respectable would be another good custom word, fittingness word. With modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper, there's the word, for women who profess godliness, namely with good works. So notice there's a propriety between good works and the profession of a godly woman, and there's an impropriety between a profession of godliness and immodesty or ostentatious dress. 
Okay, and notice that Paul gives concrete examples there as well that fit his time and place that we need to consider. So drill in a little bit more. Proverbs, fitness, this is fitness. Proverbs 26, Think this is trying to get you the category so you have it in your head. Like snow in summer, and you're like, Minnesota, we've been there. Like snow in summer or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Okay? Like snow is out of place in summer. It doesn't belong there. It doesn't fit. That's fitness. There's no law, right? There's no law that says you can't have snow in summer. Like we get it. Sometimes it happens. Like I remember like May 1st, like there was a snowstorm one time here and it was just like, are you kidding me? Right? It's out of place. It's out of place. And now you know how to apply the proverb. Fitness could be a moral category, though, too. So it could be sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness must not be named among you as is proper, as is fit among the saints, Ephesians chapter 5. Or listen to this. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place. It's out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Titus 2, Paul says that there is a kind of conduct that fits with sound doctrine. And then he gives instruction to older men, older women, younger men, so forth. And this fitting conduct, this appropriate conduct is passed down from generation to generation. Older people teach and model it for younger people. That's how Paul sees this happening. Or how about this one? 1 Corinthians eleven thirteen to 15, Paul says, listen, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? Now, I know that that's a, that's a confusing and controversial passage. I just want you to hear all the categories that Paul is using to make it. So you have, this is scripture in which Paul appeals to nature in order to get at what is culturally proper. Scripture appealing to nature to get to what is proper, okay? And I bring these categories to your attention because we really struggle with this in the modern world. This is a, this is a challenge to us. Why? Um, we, we don't, the authority of customs and culture is difficult. For one, because we in the modern world have been exposed to so many different ways of doing it, different cultures all over the place, we conclude that it's just arbitrary. It's just arbitrary. Who's to say which is the correct way to salute or the proper form of address or whether we should wear hats indoors? So we rightly recognize that there's a difference between nature and scripture on the one hand and culture on the other. We say there's a difference. That's true. And then we wrongly conclude that culture is just relative. It doesn't have any binding force upon us, which isn't true. So it's like, in the modern world, what we want, we want clear and absolute laws, and if we don't have clear and absolute laws, it's total unmitigated freedom, and you can't tell me what to do at all. If we think if something is culturally conditioned, anything goes. In other words, when it comes to customs, traditions, and cultures, Americans are highly individualistic and highly relativistic. We often substitute fashion for custom. And fashion is an individual choice based on what's available at the market. So you, we choose what we do based on, this is a grab bag. It's an individualized, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to do this. That's how we operate. 
as opposed to customs, which are communal and, and last for a long time. Second factor, why is it difficult? It's mobility. This is, this is something we have to think about. Mobility makes this really hard uh, to do customs well because customs require stable communities. Okay? You don't get customs if you don't have stability. Communities where people are born, grow up, live in, and die in the same place, doing the same thing that their grandparents did, passing on the customs of their people from generation to generation. A highly mobile society like ours militates against custom and tradition because people are always moving in and out. And because groups tend to segregate by age, just looking around this room, right? groups tend to segregate by age. Just some gray hairs here. We're grateful for all of you, all five of you. No, there's more than that. There are more than that. I see you. <coughs> But we segregate by age, and it makes it difficult because customs and traditions are handed down older to younger. Finally, customs don't behave like commands. For them to work, you have to have a lot of corporate buy-in. You have to have corporate approval. But, and so that means they're <clears throat> informally enforced, not law enforced. That means there's social pressure and there's social stigma. And modern people do not like social stigma. We do not like to put pressure on people to do something like social pressure, we, or at least we think we don't, right? Now, the reality is it's natural for us to do this, and we find all sorts of ways to put pressure on people, even though we would say, I don't want anybody to feel bad about not doing it the way I do it. We still do, okay? But it's complicated. It's complicated for us. So I'm just introducing these categories because we'll see them in 1 Timothy. Men and women in the church in chapter 2. Paul is going to give us biblical commands. He's going to root them in nature, in God's design for men and women, and he's going to identify some cultural expressions of those things in his own day. And we have to be able to disentangle them and understand it for ourselves. Same thing is going to happen in the qualifications for elders and deacons, in his exhortations about training and godliness, in his instructions about widows, in his exhortation to slaves and masters. All of these involve nature and scripture and culture, and we've got to be able to distinguish and rightly relate them in order for us to obey the scriptures. We need to be able to see the reasons beneath the rules. Like there's reasons under this. It's not just arbitrary. There's reasons so that we don't think that it's all arbitrary and anything goes. And we also have to see the difference between nature and Bible and culture so that we don't think we have to do it in a particular cultural way or we're being disobedient. That sounds complicated and confusing, I know. I spent a long time on it because, because it's important. It is It is complicated. Distinguishing and connecting nature and scripture and culture takes maturity and it takes work. And we're, we, as pastors, we want you to join us in this work. We won't be able to understand the scriptures or to rightly apply them if we don't grow in our ability to work within these categories. Now, um, just I'm going to mention this now. Um, in the sermon manuscript, what's going to go up online, I'm, I'm linking to uh, a sermon series by a pastor friend of mine named Stephen Wedgworth on 1 Corinthians 11, which is that passage I read about head coverings. Okay, very confusing passage. It's like a four-part sermon. He's preaching through 1 Corinthians, four sermons on that. And it was really helpful for me in getting these categories straight. So I'm going to link to those at the bottom of that. So if you want to follow up, I want to think more about nature and scripture and custom and how this all works together. You can just go, when, the, when it's posted online, go to the bottom. There'll be four links. You can go read or listen to those on your own. For now, bring, bring brings us to the table, okay? I'll invite the worship team to go ahead and come on up. I want to connect what I just said about customs 
to our liturgy here at the table and to Paul's opening words in the letter. You know, we practice here weekly communion. And when it comes time for us to drink the wine together, you've all noticed, this is probably something you may not have done at other places, what do we do with the wine, with the cup? We raise it, right? You notice that almost everybody in here will raise the glass. The pastor will raise it, and everybody else follows suit. Why? Why do we do this? The main reason is a biblical one. The Bible says, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Lifting up the cup of salvation is a common biblical image. And therefore, follow me, it's fitting then when, that when we're taking the cup of salvation, we lift it up. Now, there's no law. Like if you go to a different church and everybody's got their little cup right here, it's fine. Not been out of shape about it at all, but it's our custom. And it's good. And if you don't do it here, it looks a little weird. It looks like you're trying to say something. You're trying to say, I'm not doing what all y'all are doing. I'm not a part of this group. So we all do it together because customs are communal. There's a bonus because in American culture, there's a tradition of raising a glass at a toast or a salute during times of celebration. And this is a time of celebration. And so not only do we get the biblical grounding, but we also get the dovetailing nicely with American customs. And so with that... I want to invite you to the table with Paul's opening words one more time. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy and all of us, true children in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord offered to you at this table. Pastors, you come. We'll pass the bread around. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.